This is the Straight Dope, episode 59. Holy smokes, we're flying through these episodes, and the podcast hasn't been around that long. We get thousands and thousands of listeners a week, and everything is growing kind of more than I would have expected in some areas and not in others, but we're going to continue to do this, and some of this growth is because you guys are sharing, liking, and uh, introducing the podcast, and some of it's probably just time and people stumbling onto it because there aren't that many podcasts that just go nerd level 100 uh, like I like to. And people continue to talk about Riflecraft. So going over to riflecraft.com, registering, you can use the free site, but to help the podcast and help analytics and growth, getting a subscription there does both. You get added analytics, you get emails from me, you get uh, kind of an open line to email me questions, and it helps the podcast. You can buy shirts, you can sign up for one-on-one coaching or unconventional skill assessments when they're available. That goes a long way. One thing that I'm going to talk about pretty soon here are one or two corporate sponsors or paid kind of sponsors of the podcast. I've been approached by a few companies that I've turned away. It kind of goes against a little bit of my personality to get in cahoots with companies unless they understand my personality, my approach, and the way I like to do things. But there are a couple people who have done a lot for the podcast and for me. And because I don't have the subscriptions on Riflecraft at a level where um, I'm able to do the things that I want to do with the site and the project, I'm going to take on uh, a relationship with a few companies that I do believe in and would support their stuff anyway. So we'll talk about that later. But if you want to help out and um, help support the podcast and the the website and the movement of driving data towards your own personal shooting, then go over to riflecraft.com and get a subscription. Let's get back to the things that I like to talk about. And this one is going to be a little bit different than the last few. We've been talking about arts and crafts and trying to develop little tools and tricks in that you could put in a book and refer back to to gain speed and proficiency at the skills that you need out in the field. But it, it circles back to a couple of things that I've talked about from day one and forward. So I'm going to bring up Brian Litz again, and I'm going to um, talk about his stuff, and I'm going to talk about Ryan Kleckner again, because those two guys are the two guys that I kind of fall back on, like, you know, the, the, little, um, the little guys on my shoulder on one ear whispering one thing and the other ear whispering something else. And it makes me think of something that just happened recently. My, I've got I've got kids, uh, but but some of them are young, and they don't remember, or w- of course they wouldn't remember, but they'd never seen Indiana Jones. And Indiana Jones is one of those movies that when I was a kid um, was pretty awesome and still pretty awesome. We watched it again, and it got me thinking. And it's funny how sometimes you think something, you know, life can seem overwhelming. And I'm, 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 I'm thinking about that that market kind of scene where the dude comes out with the sword and and you could think, wow, this, you know, life is overwhelming. There's all these details. I don't know how to do all this stuff, but there are simple answers to some things. And then I was uh, watching uh, the live broadcast that, that Snipers Hyde was having with Mark and Frank because they're having a class out in Fort Morgan. And they were talking about their view on getting bullet drop using what they're calling weaponized math and versus uh, just chronographing and plugging things into your ballistic calculator. 
And to me, that, that lined up kind of a perfect storm of thoughts. And I thought I would make a short story long and pump out this episode focusing on fundamentals and some of the traps that we fall into that kind of prevent us from going forward. Now, you may have heard um, kind of a general or a generic theme or, or a, a way of putting things that, that oftentimes like you need a bunch of stuff to get better. And then as you get better, you need less of that stuff and it becomes more of a crutch. And the only way to break through some of that is by deconstructing some of the things that got you to where you are in order for you to go forward. Because while they help you get to a point, then they start to hold you back and you need to evolve or modify or change your perspective. And if you get stuck in that perspective, I think that's what, what a lot of us would refer to as being stuck in, in a dogmatic cycle or a cycle that um, isn't doing, it may have got you to a point, but now you want to get better. And if you just stay with the stuff that you did to get to where you are, that's how far you're going to get, right? And I do think that there's a time and a place for getting to a point, using tools to get to a point, and then using new tools to get to another point. And I don't think that doing what you see the very best shooters, um, you know, now we've, we've got a team of, of American shooters going to France to compete in an international precision rifle competition. Now, those the guys that we sent over and the gals that we sent over there are amazing shooters and they all train differently. But one thing is for sure, they are some of the best shooters in the world and they're consistent. And that's why we sent them because they can consistently perform at a level that could win them trophies internationally. And most likely they probably will bring home trophies because they are the best shooters in the world. What got them to that point is not the same thing that they do now to train. And if we did what they do now, we won't necessarily get to their point. So you have to kind of go A to B to C. And if we don't follow that path to get there, it'll probably be slower. But then once we get there, you got to modify things. So, so let's talk about what we're actually going after. And from, from my perspective, it's just about consistency and repeatability. And that might sound kind of silly and ridiculous, but the idea, you've probably all heard stories about it, uh, you know, the farmer that has a duplex reticle, and it doesn't matter if it's inside of 800 yards, that farmer can just whip out their duplex reticle and smoke a coyote. They don't need range, they don't need wind, they don't need dope, because they know exactly what they need to do. And if you ask them specific questions, like what's the BC of your bullet, their eyes would probably glaze over. What's the velocity of your bullet? Who the hell knows? What he does know, or what she does know, is exactly what to do to get the result that they're looking for. That, in a sense, makes them a perfect marksman. If what they can do day in and day out is make consistent and repeatable shots and land them where they're aiming, it doesn't matter if they dial or hold over. It doesn't matter if they get their windage from their nose hairs. It doesn't matter if they have... uh, custom drag model. It doesn't, none of that matters, right? What we do, all of us, no matter what, it's going to be hard to argue with me about this. Even in the disciplines that I don't participate in, we all measure ourselves based on putting a little piece of lead or a solid or whatever it is, like delivering energy to the place that we intend to deliver that thing. Now we measure it on steel impacts, we measure it on paper, we measure it a lot of ways, but all we're trying to do is consistently and reliably deliver that thing where we're intending it to go. If 
you've developed the skill to be able to do that consistently, reliably, and statistically in a statistically significant way, um, I think that's awesome. Now, when you hear stories like that, it's pretty easy to fall into a trap that, that you know, like magicians and stuff, um, you know, palm readers and shit like that want you to fall into, which is, you know, our minds um, pay attention differently to positive feedback and negative feedback or successes and wins or wins and losses, right? And that's why it's really easy for us to get hooked on gambling because when you win, you win big, but when you lose, it's easy to write it off like, oh, that was a flyer or I jerked the trigger and all that stuff. So if that farmer that could 100% of the time smoke a coyote inside of 800 yards without a rangefinder or a ballistic calculator or a dope drop, but in reality, it's one of them and the nine other shots are excuses about, you know, it was run, it stopped running or the wind picked up or that all of a sudden now um, you know it's starting to line back into we need we need better data but how that data comes about um, isn't isn't as important to me as the ability to be repeatable at a distance and keep track of that so that you have a statistically significant you want it to really be true like if I say hundred percent of the time I'm gonna hit this target I want to be able to take you know, 100 rounds and put all those 100 rounds into that thing to say, okay, look, this was significant. A lot better than, you know, I can hit this target and then you get a first round impact. And while that is pretty awesome, um, that's a lot different than doing 100 in a row, which would have included a first round impact as well. But then being able to continue to do that over and over and over again and detect those changes, that's kind of the stuff that, that we're looking for. So I like the idea of the dude that has a duplex reticle that always hits because that's the same goal that all of us are going after. I just think that that for me, um, you know, I like to keep track of, of what's going on and then think about what is it that, that we're looking for in there. Now, I get it. I'm, I'm kind of rambling on and on. But there are a lot of concepts that circle the same idea. And the same idea is keeping the goal the goal, which I say a lot. And that goal is just what I said. We want to be able to hit the thing that we're trying to hit, period. How do we simplify that? Well, I could chronograph my data and put it in a ballistic calculator and make sure that all of my inputs are correct and it should put out a good output. Great. I can also do the weaponized mathing where I shoot at 100 yards, I shoot at 300 yards, then I multiply a multiplier by my drop, it gives me the data for my next 100 yards. If I adjust it up and down a tenth or so, then I adjust that and I adjust that and I adjust that, and then I reverse calculate my velocity and my BC into my calculator. But either way, we're getting data from actual impacts. Now, I don't, I don't really care how you get it, as long as not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day, you get repeatable performance because that's what we're looking for. We don't want you to have, you know, a top 10 finish today and a top 30 finish tomorrow and then another top 10 next week and then a top 30 the week after that because that shows that something is off. So where does this kind of circle back into uh, the Ryan Kleckner, Brian Litz, and shooting universe discussion here for you guys? Well, it's to rethink, you know, what are your goals and, and how are we looking at those things? With Riflecraft, we're able to show whether you're consistent. Now, you might not like it because sometimes you might have a high shot or a low shot and you'll say, oh, that's a flyer. And I say, well, I don't think there's flyers. That's just that you overlooked a step in your process to be consistent. Or 
you know, maybe you have shitty ammo, maybe, but most likely you, you know, you temporarily overlook a part of the puzzle that needs to be followed every single time. And if you don't follow that recipe, right, if I make cookies and, and, and I forget to put in sugar, it's, it's going to be fundamentally a different experience for the people eating those cookies. And if you say, well, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, or you just try to come up with an excuse for why that one was an exception, right, then we're following it, we're falling into that like gambling addiction. We don't want it to be a gambling addiction. We want to be a performance addiction where you consistently perform at a better and better and consistent and consistent. If that means accepting that even though you have a quarter-inch load, you're a one-inch shooter, I would rather be the one-inch shooter who could shoot one inch all day, day and night, than the quarter-inch load that has two-inch flyers every fourth shot or something like that, right? Because that's not going to deliver the round where I'm aiming, where I'm intending in the zone, in the bracket that I'm actually trying to be predictably consistent in. So in order to get everybody super excited about uh, some of these ideas, I'm going to go back through some of the fundamentals of marksmanship that I think need to be revisited by you, by the individual shooter to say, you know, where am I at with this? Because it is a spectrum. And I don't think it's a, you know, it's not, everybody's in a different place. But let's talk about sight picture. I've been talking about scopes with a lot of people, you know, and it's kind of a constant work in progress. In fact, I have tons of opinions about scopes, tons of thoughts, but let's talk about sight picture. Yeah, you need a sight picture. You need to have your face in a place where you have a visual representation representation of the thing that you're trying to shoot at. If you're not consistent getting on your rifle, then you won't be able to have a good sight picture. So that consistency of mounting your rifle is part of sight picture getting the reticle on the thing and making sure it's clear and it's stable. So, so what is it? Well, it's, it's all of that stuff. If you can't get your target in your reticle in time, right, because time is a, a critical element, we need to work on getting the target in the reticle. And if you don't know how to manipulate your scope, you're going to slow down, you're going to have trouble finding it, you might time out, the opportunity may, may disappear, you could have a lot of issues with that. Then the reticle, you need to have the reticle on it and you either need to have dialed dope or holdovers or subtensions or the duplex Kentucky windage. You have to have some way of making sure that, you know, their, the rifle is calibrated in a way that when you're looking at your target, you're going to deliver that bullet where you're aiming. But as you progress through that, that becomes subconscious. That becomes rote behavior that is built into your shot process. So is sight picture important? Well, absolutely it's important. And it tells you a lot of information, but it's only information that you have to be capable of absorbing. For example, if your fundamentals are good and you have good sight picture, you have target acquisition, you have your reticle, it's stable, it's clear, your parallax is removed and you shoot. If you have good sight picture capabilities, then you should be able to see your impact. Now that includes recoil management. It includes follow through. It includes, you know, all the other components, but it's still a part of sight picture. If you have a sight picture, you'll be able to see your impact. If you don't have the skill level to be able to see your impact because you didn't maintain a sight picture, obviously that's not something that you need to work on as much as you need to work on the things that underlay those skills, underlay that until you can see your impact. Yes, Glass quality is going to play a role in your ability to see your impact. Your reticle 
is going to play a role in your ability to see the impact. If there's too much reticle that's obstructing that view or it's distracting to your eyes, it's going to be harder for you to see those. And I don't have a good solution for that, but it's something that you need to think about and consider and weigh the cost benefit of a complicated reticle and a less complicated reticle so that you could see more. But if you can't maintain a sight picture after your shot, it really doesn't matter. You need to work on things before that that allow you to have a sight picture that allow you to see your impact. And then you have a follow through and then you can do a number of things. You can mill it. You can decide, was it wind? Was it me? Was my elevation correct? You can make a lot of decisions based on that sight picture, but that sight picture story for every shooter is going to change. I don't think that buying an expensive scope is going to fix any of that for you, really. And it's very hard to come up with scenarios where expensive scopes have glass quality such that in these particular conditions that we compete in, there's much of a difference. Now, that's my personal opinion, but I can go out in various conditions and various light conditions and see very clearly that there's different glass quality for sure. And I, I have gone out at low light and no light and messed around with the illuminated reticles. And, but when we go to competitions, we're not shooting in those conditions. So do you really need that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool to say, well, you know, I've got these, um, crazy night vision devices and, all these crazy thermal things, but if you're if you're never actually going to use it, um, that's a that's a different conversation. I'm I'm talking about going out and having a use for it. And from my interest personally is field shooting. And in field shooting scenarios, uh, I haven't run into a I have I have never run into a circumstance where um, where glass quality was the deciding factor on my impacts or misses. I've been out there where glass froze over and, and ice was on it and you had to chip off the ice. And I've been in conditions where it were foggy and everybody's, but there were $4,000 scopes there that, that did the same thing. In fact, I saw $4,000 scopes break because of those conditions. And so what, you know, that's, a, that's another episode, but what, what are you like with the price of a scope? What are you really getting? Like, man, sometimes that's a hard answer to answer, right? Because I have seen the very most expensive scopes, all of them break under the same conditions that cheap cheap ones uh, may not have broke. So do you want really good glass that breaks or something that doesn't break? Um, I would tend to lean towards something that doesn't break, um, but you can't just know whether that's going to happen or not without actually taking your stuff out into those conditions, which um, not everybody's going to do. But anyway... What I'm trying to say here is that sight picture is an evolved concept. And if you just say, you know, I need, I need to have my, my target to here. I need to check my parallax. I need to have my clear reticle. And, 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 and you're not kind of offloading some of that to get to the step that you're at and knowing what the next one might be, but knowing where you came from so that you can say, okay, I've got all that's covered, but here's the next part of that. That sight picture uh, phenomena could become dogma and you don't want, to, you don't want that to, to happen. Ideally, all that happens and you see more and more and more. And part of my personal, because I like to talk about my journey because I'm not the best shooter and I'm growing and constantly growing, part of my sight picture process is acknowledging Mirage. So I can see the target. I can see the reticle. I can see my impacts. I can do all sorts of stuff. But what my cognition isn't really absorbing is, is the Mirage angle, direction, consistency, you know, whatever it is for me personally. And so part of my sight picture process now involves mirage recognition. 
So as I go through my shot process, I have a step that's mirage recognition, but that's not necessarily a step that you need. And it's something that, that better shooters might already do and be offloading kind of already. And they might be onto something more advanced than that, but understanding that you need to figure out where you're at with your sight picture and understand that it's not going to stay the same and that you need to add in new things to your sight picture that become available as your skill levels go up. And that continues on to all the other fundamentals. For example, trigger press. I think that a lot of the fundamentals, uh, this is just my my opinion or my thought, but a lot of the fundamentals came back to you're holding a rifle offhand. So, you know, then you think like, wow, well, it's really hard to hold a rifle offhand and keep it stable. So there's like, well, let's use a sling. So you do this crazy sling stuff. And then it's like, okay, well, let's use a fancy shirt and a bag and all this other stuff. Because offhand, it's very hard to hold a rifle stable. Now, if you want to just do a simple test, grab a little laser pointer, tape it on the end of a broomstick, and aim that little laser pointer without having it wiggle on a wall across the house. It's going to be hard for you to do, but a good shooter should theoretically be able to hold that laser pointer perfectly still. If you do, you might notice that you could see your breathing. You might be able to notice that you could see your heartbeat. You might be able to notice that all the little things that you do have an effect on the laser wiggling on the wall across the room, including trigger press. We don't shoot offhand like this anymore. So some of the fundamentals, they're designed, yes, they have an influence on the rifle if you're shooting offhand because your balance and stability of something that doesn't weigh very much is pretty significant. Now, all of those effects are still there. We've found better ways to mask them. But in masking them, those effects that are still there have a reduced and reduced effect on where the bullet goes to the point where some of the fundamentals, even though you can argue in their favor, probably have zero effect on the bullet downrange. Right? And it's a spectrum. But there are great shooters who are consistent all the time, repeatable. There are shooters going to France from the United States who are always top performers who slap the shit out of their triggers. They don't have a, what would be called a good trigger press. They slap it. They flick it. They don't follow through. And yet the bullet goes where they intend every single time. The final say is that consistency, not what it looked like, not you know, that it followed a particular recipe. Remember, the goal, keeping the goal the goal is simplicity. It's doing the Indiana Jones thing. Did you get the result that you're looking for? If you can do that consistently over time, then it doesn't matter what other people say because you're getting the result that you're looking for consistently over time. Now, if you start to have statistical uh, instances come in where it's like, well, sometimes I do this, sometimes I do this. Every once in a while, I get a flyer, I do this, I do this. We start looking back to find the cause of what caused those shots to go left, right, up, or down. But if somebody's able to do it all the time, then it's not a bad trigger, trigger press. But again, take a broomstick and a laser, shine it on the wall, and you'll be able to demonstrate movement left, right, based on that trigger press. Most likely, it's going to be left and right when it's the trigger press because your finger is easy, it moves easier in that left and right, um, the left and right axis, right? Now, when you start bringing in anticipation and jerk, you start getting up and down, uh, diving of, of, of things. But the way that we shoot now, it's not really happening as much, although you can see some left-right variation depending on the trigger weight. So the way people got around some of that stuff is lowering the weight of the trigger so that it didn't take as much of a jerk 
or a squeeze to get the trigger to go off so that you didn't have to squeeze the grip or put your finger through and pull it back towards your palm or push it away from you. But the, the obsession about a 90 degree trigger pull is coming from a place where you can throw your shot left or right, up or down without that 90 degree. It's a good idea to follow, but again, it's not the be all end all if you're consistently providing evidence to yourself on paper that your shot is going where it needs to go. You don't need to have a four ounce trigger because that introduces a lot of issues with um, safety. And I have found personally that, you know, if, if a trigger is too heavy, you can induce um, problems, right? It, it, it adds a layer of safety, but it induces some problems because you really do have to pull back and it has something to do with the positional stability and your ability to contract your finger and maintain a solid, stable position without pulling that um, rifle out of position. But there's a, there's a point in the middle where it doesn't need to be too light and it doesn't need to be too heavy. I just use the factory settings on the triggers that I get, so I don't even know what my poundage is. It's heavier than a lot of triggers. It's probably lighter than some. I don't even worry about it, though. Um, and although we, we shot a three oh eight. um this weekend or this last weekend at a competition, there was a um, stage gun, and and it was a 308, and it had a pretty heavy trigger. And I did notice that wow, I'm re- I, like when I expected it to go, I was continuing to pull, continuing. And I was like, man, I'm continuing to add more and more pressure until it shot, uh, because it wasn't something that I was familiar with. I would prefer to have that than have it go off unexpectedly because the trigger was particularly light. So I guess I would caution you if you have a light trigger and somebody else is going to shoot your rifle to tell them to dry fire it a few times so that they get a feel for how light that trigger might be because you could have problems when the trigger is too light going off before you want it to go off because you've conditioned your nervous system to apply a certain amount of pressure to make it go off. And and I definitely have that pattern of I know what I'm looking for with my triggers and I could see how that would not work with lighter ones or heavier ones. I just have to continue to pull, continue to pull so the shot would break later than I would have intended initially, but um, was able to hit the target we were shooting at with the stage gun, even though it was a, uh, a heavy trigger because the position was pretty good. It was just shooting it off of uh, um, one of the Bison Tactical. Um, it was a, They had a stage, stage bag, and it was off of one of those other bags that Bison Tactical makes, and uh, we were shooting a target about 350 yards with this um, old 308. And, and, it, and it worked just fine, although I do remember that that trigger press was heavier and it took a lot longer than I intended it to break. Position was stable, so, um, so it worked. Stability takes out a lot of the old school idea of this perfect trigger press, right? If you have a super stable position, then you're covering up the effect of the force or the poundage on that lateral movement of the rifle. So the heavier the rifle and the more stable the position is, the harder it is for your trigger to screw that thing up. But if you're shooting offhand, you're going to see that effect more and more and more. It's not a bad idea to work for a 90-degree trigger press, but it's probably not the only reason you're missing left and right. And in fact, a lot of you might be attributing some of that stuff to your trigger press when it isn't your trigger press at all. And that goes directly into breath. 
we need to breathe because we're mammals and we need oxygen. And a lot of our physiology depends on getting rid of carbon dioxide and taking in oxygen so that it can go to places that the oxygen needs to be and getting the carbon dioxide out of our bodies so that the acid base balance of our blood and our tissues stays at a level where we're able to maintain homeostasis and perform the tasks that we need to do. Now, cognition is important, right? You need to be able to think straight, which means you need to be hydrated. It means you need to have a good blood sugar level. You need to um, have good, got a good night's sleep, and you need to be able to breathe consistently. If you're standing offhand, you can see a dramatic effect in the rise and fall of your muzzle or your sight picture, and you can do that again with a laser pointer and the stick. If you're breathing in and out, you can see your breath, right? You can see that reticle or the laser pointer or whatever it is that you're using to measure up, down, up, down, up, down, and you can see that there's an effect on that. And so obviously there's going to be an effect on where the bullet goes based on where the muzzle's pointing on that breath. It's also going to affect the tissues in your body when it comes to recoil management because the density and the rebound and the movement of those tissues on your particular body is going to change whether you've got a full, um, you know, whether your lungs are full or whether they're empty. But I don't think it, personally, I don't think it matters when you shoot, right? Because, but, but as long as you do it consistently. And under stress, I can imagine a scenario where it's going to be very hard for you to do that on that respiratory pause. And because we've got equipment that's heavier and more stable, um, it, because, it becomes a kind of diminishing effect on the point of impact of your bullet. And I, I've done a lot of tests for me because some of the field stuff I do, we're hustling, so your heart's beating fast. And if your heart's beating fast because you've been hustling, it's likely you've got more carbon dioxide to get rid of, so you need to offload that by breathing. And so when is it the right time to shoot? For me, I don't um, pay as much attention to that anymore after shooting a bunch of paper and realizing that it's absorbed into the deviation that I get shooting anyway. But I do think that paying attention to breath at first is very important because it teaches you something about recoil management. And that recoil management, where the rifle is up against your body, is going to change depending on how fat you are, how muscular you are, how bony you are, how much air there is in your lungs, and a lot of other things. And so that plays a role into that proprioceptive awareness. And so I think of breath awareness as more of a proprioceptive awareness of what happens under recoil with this rifle to influence the bullet going up, down, left, right. That breath is a part of that. You can see it and measure it based on how you approach recoil management and how you approach the stage and whether you're stressed and whether you're out of breath and whether you need to breathe. And so I think it's a good thing to pay attention to, but I don't think it's simply shooting in your respiratory pause. Shooting in your respiratory pause is a good way to be, to, to label a cycle that has a consistent spot in a consistent way. And it's smart to do the respiratory pause because physiologically we're more consistent on that pause than we are with the inhale because it's hard for you to inhale the same amount under different conditions because of the tonicity of your muscles and the volume of air that you can get into your lungs. If you've been exercising, it's going to be different than if you've just been sitting around, but it's more consistent more often at the time at the respiratory pause. But on the other hand, I don't think it has to do with the respiratory pause as much as being consistent. And if you can train consistency, then it really doesn't matter because you're able to deliver that bullet where you want it to go 
when you want it to go because you understand the components that are required to bring to the table when it's time to bring to the table. And that's where we come back to training and stress and competition is introducing things that you didn't anticipate or you didn't intend on to see if it throws you off your cycle. If you can come up with scenarios, and usually the easiest way to do that is have somebody else come up with the scenario, like a competition, right? Or like a hunt, but you can't hunt all the time. So going to competition or simulating stressful, and what I mean by stress is just unknown, unprepared, unrehearsed scenarios that are going to try to throw off your fundamentals, throw off your shot process, throw off the things that you do. And when that happens, rather than throwing your hands up in the air and saying, uh, making an excuse for it, those are the golden moments where we say, oh man, I need to rewrite my process, reapproach this. Why did the shot go where it went to? I need, it, it, it is, it caught a flaw in the system showing that this may or may not matter. And it goes both ways, right? If I'm out of breath and the only way for me to stop moving is to hold my breath and I make a shot and it goes dead center and I, and I catch that and I go, wow, that was dead center. And then I do it again and I hold my breath and I do it and it hits dead center again and again and again. It's not that one-time success, although that's fun and nice and it's easy to do a mic drop when it happens. If you can repeat it and say, wow, maybe I've been thinking about this wrong. Maybe it's not what I thought it was. And it, and it spurs that creativity and that excitement about doing something more consistently, maybe that's going to lead you down a path of exploration that'll have greater and greater success. And that's what excites me about shooting is that we, we look at these fundamentals like sight picture, trigger press, follow through, um, respiratory pause. And you think, does that really influence it the way that I think or I heard or I saw? And then you try to repeat it and you try to make sure that you have the confidence and the consistency that you need in order to accomplish the goals that you have. So keeping the goal the goal is simply hitting where you intend to hit. But doing that means understanding where you're at and how you need to build upon that. And that as you get a level of competency, you need to introduce new things and maybe remove old things, right? You got to take off training wheels or water wings in order to learn how to do certain strokes or to, to bike in certain terrain. It's going to prevent you from getting into that terrain simply because mechanically it's not going to work the same. And so whether I'm standing up vertically or bent over, is that going to matter for me personally shooting off of a tripod? Maybe or maybe not. But I don't want to hear somebody tell me I have to stand up completely vertical and I have to have my feet together and I have to do this. Because when you hear things like that, it's dogmatic because there's a time and a place for everything and it's layering in the skills so that those skills can deliver repeat performance. And if you do something and it doesn't, maybe you're not ready for it yet. But as you grow with skill and understanding, all of that should kind of wash away. And that's why I like the balance between Ryan Kleckner's, you know, show me on the doll approach and Brian Litz's, you know, show me on the spreadsheet approach is that reality is is kind of in between both of them. You know, we can whip out ballistic calculators and fight on the internet about the difference in a BC and wind drift and elevation all day and all night, and it's not wrong. But we can also whip out a duplex reticle and just smoke a coyote at 600 yards 
not knowing what our BC is. And both are absolutely correct. And what is it that we're after? Are we after the, the engineering? Because that's cool. Are we after the coyote hunting? Because that's cool. You got to know what your goal is and maintain the balance between those two ends of the spectrum so that it'll guide you towards adding and removing things that are maybe holding you back from, from moving forward. So anyway, this was my Indiana Jones consistently keeping the goal the goal and balancing between the science and the duplex reticle and thinking about those fundamentals. And what, where, where are you at with each of those fundamentals and, and what do you need to take out and what do you need to add and what can you add to that? Because with my trigger press, like I feel my, I have a point where, you know, now I'm not so, I don't just shoot, you know, there, there are just like the sight picture with the mirage to me, I have a, you know, I can feel the touch of the trigger. I can feel the skin squish before the trigger hits the wall. I can feel the wall and then I can feel the follow through and I hold it back and I'm looking. And so there are steps to all of these fundamentals that if you, if you really want to keep them categorized like that, then you may as well upgrade them and think about them at the level that you're, you're shooting at it. And if you're completely unaware of what's happening with your trigger finger, this is a sign that you need to start paying attention to that. If you're completely unaware of what you're doing with your breath, it's probably a good idea to think about what am I doing with my breath? Can I pay attention to that a little bit so that you can say, okay, this is what I'm consistently or inconsistently doing. And if you're, if you're always getting the shot where you want it to, then inconsistency in that realm doesn't have an influence really on your overall picture at this point. It might in the future. It might have in the past. It's hard to say. But until you start to deviate from the group sizes that you shoot now and the goal of sizes that you're shooting you know, in the future, uh, those things need to be addressed consciously and very carefully so that we don't fall back into a dogmatic kind of rote repetition because this isn't just memorizing a dance, right? It's understanding our influence on the rifle, the environment's influence on the bullet, and the factors that contribute to hitting what we want to hit. And there's always things that anyone can layer in on top of it. It's just, are we ready to recognize that? And are we ready to start absorbing it and building that into our training process? So at Riflecraft, you know, we're kind of doing that slowly. We're saying that we're the biggest influence on the rifle. We can show that by shooting paper at 100 and logging our targets. Now, if I want to see the projected estimator at a distance based on my ability to call wind. I can do that with a combined shooter bracket now. I can see whether my influence is left, right, up, down, whether there are isolated impacts, which are a fancy term for flyers, whether the groups are, you know, single, double, triple groups. Um, and keeping track of all that stuff is very important. And then on the targets, you can write the notes down. And keeping those notes on the targets allows you to account for the variables that you're paying attention to. I think all that stuff is really important. And it's important because it guides you in a way based on data towards the goals that you have. But never stop backing up and thinking, what's the goal and how do we approach this in a simple and logical way? Because it's easy to get overwhelmed by distracting data or I don't understand math and I don't understand this and I don't understand this. So you think, okay, well, there's no way for me to understand it. But on the other hand, you could just do it and, and not have to understand all that stuff.
right? You could be the guy that knows Kentucky windage. You could have your weaponized math memorized so that you know the elevation that you need to dial. You didn't need a chronograph. You didn't need a ballistics calculator. There's a lot of ways to solve a lot of these problems. And a lot of them are fancy, and they allow you to be consistent and repeatable. But don't forget that we're after consistency and repeatability. We're not depending on all of those things to give it to us. And as we get more consistent and repeatable, a lot of those things that we're depending on, we may not need any longer to do the things that we do. And in fact, they might be holding us back from understanding things at a richer and deeper and more advanced level. So that's food for thought. And I'll talk to you soon.